What a joy to be gathered together again, to be in God's Word, to sing His praises, to pray together, to encourage one another, and I hope that that is why uh, each of us is here today. I, I hope that as we're interacting with one another before and after the service that we'll be thinking how we might be used by God today. You know, there's been many times when I've sat across from people and they've told me that they were in a really difficult season of life and they came to gather with God's people at church and, and how the Lord just did these little things through the interactions with his people that lifted them up and encouraged them. And I've seen that in my own life and I know that probably all of us here have as well. So let the Lord use us this morning. Let's pray that he will use us today, that we won't just be receivers, but that we will be servants of the Lord in his hands as we care for one another today and as we grow in his word. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Flip there, scroll there, however you want to find it. Exodus chapter 12, we will be in verses 33 to 42. As most of you know, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus since March. Uh, So we've been in this book for a little while, and that is our custom as a church. We go through books of the Bible, or in the case of the Sermon on the Mount several years ago, chunks of books of the Bible. Uh, We were in Romans before Exodus, and now we are into Exodus up to chapter 12. And today we actually come to the Exodus. (laughs) We come to the Exodus (coughs) within the book of Exodus. Exodus, the Exodus itself, the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, the bringing out that the Lord did of the Israelites out of the bondage, out of the oppression, out of the enslavement that they had experienced in Egypt. So the title for the sermon this morning is simply Exiting Egypt. And you'll see that up there if you want to write that down, Exiting Egypt. Last week we talked about God's top priority. And I hope this took up a little bit of discussion for you this past week in gospel community groups. God's top priority. And what is God's top priority? It it is his own glory. And as I was thinking about this this week, I imagine that maybe if you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever or you're a child, or maybe anybody really, you might ask the question, that really sounds strange. You know, we would find that utterly repulsive. In a human being, would we not? Uh, if, if we knew of someone who basically spent his or her entire existence waking life, seeking his or her own glory, we would say, that's a bad person. That's not someone I want to be friends with or close with. That's, that's not the sort of thing that we value as a virtue. That would be something on the human plane of existence that we would regard as a vice, Seeking your own glory. So maybe this sounds strange to you. God is all about his own glory. He's all about his own renown, his own name, his own reputation. That is his top priority. Well, if that does sound strange to you, I want you to think about this one thing. And it's this simple. What else would God be about? Think about it. If If for us, it is sinful to not be about God's glory. That's that's the height of sin, is to raise up creatures above the creator. 
to exalt that which has beginning over he who does not. If that is the essence and heart of sin, as we see in Romans 1, then how could God be about anything other than his own triune glory? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally existing in love. God for his own glory. This is God's top priority. That his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what God's about. And if that's what God's about, that's what God's people must be about. In fact, you can identify God's people in this way. Those who are about proclaiming God's glory in all the earth are those who are demonstrating the fruit of having God in their lives. That his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. We read that in Exodus 9, verse 16. So that leads us to another question. How does God accomplish this priority, this top priority in this fallen world? How does God see to it that his name is proclaimed in all the earth? How does God glorify himself in this fallen world if that is his top priority? And there are two ways. Through judgment and through salvation. We saw this back in chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians, this is the Lord speaking, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So how is it that the Egyptians, and for that matter, all peoples will know that the Lord is God? How is it that Yahweh will be glorified on the earth. It is through his stretching out his hand against judgment and his bringing out of his people salvation. You could put it this way. God is glorified when he strikes and when he saves. And what does his striking and saving reveal? Why why does this, God's striking and judgment, And his saving of his people, why do those two things coupled together show him to be great? Why do those things glorify him on the earth? Well, Psalm 83, 18 tells us that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. So how is it that we come to know that all other so-called gods are just that? So-called. How is it that we come to see that all the things our heart clings to, all the things we could worship, are no gods at all? It is through the glory of God's name in judgment and salvation that he shows himself to be God alone. That there is no competitor for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How gracious that God would show us that. Because how enslaving are our idols. I once read a book by Timothy Keller. It's always stuck with me. He said, uh, we, we end up crushing those things that we idolize. We crush them. Idolize your marriage, crush it. Idolize your children, you crush it. Idolize your job, crush it. Your pleasures, your leisure, your vacations, your money, you crush it. Because none of those things 
were meant to be worshipped. Only God alone. Well, we've talked a lot about God's judgment as we've looked at the ten plagues. And we know what all of these plagues are about from Exodus 12, verse 12. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. So as the Lord is pouring out these judgments, these ten plagues on Egypt, he is showing the Egyptian gods to be nothing. He is bringing his judgment upon the gods of the Egyptians, showing that they are absolutely impotent to do anything for the people. But we've also seen much already about God's salvation. So it hasn't just up to this point been about God's judgment. We have seen God raise up a deliverer for his people Israel. We've seen him protect his people from the plagues. And we've seen him give the Passover as he passes over their sin when striking the Egyptians. So already... We've seen a lot about God's salvation, not just his judgment. And today, climactically, he brings his people out of Egypt. As I said before at the beginning, we've come to uh, the actual exodus today. Here we will see God liberates, he redeems, he rescues his people. He brings them out from Egyptian bondage. And he does it through judgment. Salvation through judgment. Judgment. And I think as all of us recognize, this is one of the most important events in the Bible. Um, If you're not very familiar with Christianity or you're not very familiar with the Bible, uh, this is one of those that you're likely to have heard about, even if you've never read a page of the Bible. The Exodus, one of the most important events, not only because of what it accomplished in history, but also because of what it points to. The exodus of Egypt, as grand, as literal, and historical, and as rooted in space and time as it is, is a type. It's a a little picture. It's a type of a greater thing, of a fulfilled thing. This event is the great picture in the Bible for what God does for us through Jesus Christ. The Exodus is the picture of how God saves his people, liberates, rescues, and redeems through the blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death for sinners on the cross, which we sang about earlier. Did you sing those those words? As Ken said, did did you sing those words with joy? Do you know what it is to be washed In the blood of Christ, take all the baths you want. You'll never wash away your own sin before a holy God. But Christ's blood does. It washes us perfectly clean in the sight of God's fiery holiness. He sees his son and he passes over our sin. Praise God for that gospel. If you're here today and you have not trusted Jesus Christ, turn to Christ. Turn away from these idols, these things that you think are gods, these things that you've bowed down before and worshipped, and turn to this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who rescues us from sin, from a wasted life to a life of meaning. A life of worship. 
We see how the Exodus is a picture for Christ's work in a few texts. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, once again, God's name, you see that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.13 says the same thing. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, you've heard me say before that every Christian is a person who has experienced his or her own individual exodus. Uh, so w- one of the things that I like to do in going through text is to, to sort of explain what are the marks of a true believer? What are the marks of a Christian? How should we get assurance for understanding that we really are in the Lord, that we, we, we examine our hearts and we recognize I, I am indeed a believer. I'm truly a Christian, not just professing, but I belong to Christ. There are various ways we come to see that, but one of the ways that I think can, can help to open up our minds is to ask ourselves the question, have I had an exodus? Have I had an exodus in my own heart, in my own life? Have I come out of darkness and into light? Have I come out of slavery to sin and into the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ? That's how we know whether our profession means anything at all. We can say we are Christians right up until death. A thousand times a day, and it means nothing unless we truly are. Do we have the blood of the Lamb? Have we exited Egypt, as it were? If you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Exodus 12, verses 33 to 42. Exodus 12, verses 33. To 42. This is the holy and trustworthy word of the living God. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them a very, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. So there was no time for the yeast to rise, no time for putting yeast in it. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. 
It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. You can go ahead and be seated. I will typically go back and forth between Lord and Yahweh. So understand this. When in the scriptures you see capital L, capital O-R-D, when you see that, that is a reference to the holy name of God, which most scholars understand to have been pronounced Yahweh. Uh, In previous centuries, and in the King James Version, it's kind of been enshrined as Jehovah. But most agree that it was probably pronounced Yahweh. This is the holy name of God. Of God. So when you see that, understand that that is what is being referred to there with God's name. I also want to just point this out, as I've said before. Uh, throughout the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh's names are not mentioned. The gods of Egypt are not mentioned. But every single verse, it seems, is just dripping with the name of Yahweh. Just dripping with the name of the Lord. He is being exalted. And the so-called gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh, are nameless, pushed down under the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glory. We thank you that we sinful people, people who were born with a sinful nature, people born into this world in Adam, evidencing our sinfulness and our selfishness, our hatred of authority, our desire to trample on our neighbor to get what we want, our looking to created things to satisfy us and ignoring or suppressing the truth of your identity. Lord, all of these things show up in toddlers. It is with us from the beginning. We see our sinfulness. And the fact that we, sinful creatures, would have the privilege and honor of glorifying your name, of being here this morning to sing of your excellencies, to to declare you before your people, to confess you together. Lord, what a blessing. What an honor. We praise you that you have been so merciful to us as to call us out of darkness into the light of your Son. Lord, I pray for a sober-mindedness here among us today as we consider the brevity of life, as we consider that life is called in many Ways in Scripture, something that just comes and goes. It is a fading flower. It is a vapor. It is a breath. It is here today and gone tomorrow. Father, would we count our days? Would we number our hours? Death is coming for all of us, Father. We pray that each of us would be ready to be received into your presence. Father, be merciful to us today as we gather, we ask... We pray for the salvation of those who are not in Christ. We pray for the building up of those who are. And we ask that you would mercifully work in the hearts of our children. Both those listening in here and those in the back. We pray that you would show them your glory. That they would see that there is no God but you. And that they would turn from their sin and trust Christ. That they would trust in the blood of Christ to save them. Not in their own good deeds and not in other things, but in the blood of Christ. We pray that for us all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read the beginning of the Exodus account today, 
we see three things about it. We see three ways that the Exodus is characterized or uh, described. And so here they are. You'll see those up on the screen here. It is a wealthy expulsion, a mass exodus, and a fulfilled event. So first, it is a wealthy expulsion, verses 33 to 36. It is a mass exodus. We'll look there, verses 37 to 39. And then finally, it is a fulfilled event. And for that, we'll look at those last three verses. So let's begin with a wealthy expulsion. The exit from Egypt by the Israelites is a wealthy expulsion. Look at verses 33 to 36 in more detail with me. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Ten strikes, ten plagues have come against Egypt, all of them from Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Not one, not a few, not a handful, but ten devastating plagues. The final plague was, of course, the most devastating. The death of the firstborn throughout Egypt from Pharaoh all the way down to the lowest members of society and all the animals the firstborn of all the animals, a massive blow to the status of Pharaoh and the so-called gods of Egypt. This was indeed an act of judgment against the Egyptians and their gods, against the Egyptians for all the evil they had done to God's people. And we remember, of course, four centuries of enslavement, but also we remember how All of Egypt was involved in this genocidal practice of taking these newborn baby Hebrew boys and tossing them in the Nile River. Food for crocodiles, drowning them, throwing them away as though they were mere trash. Who knows how long this policy continued. But we know that God's judgment, at least in part, is falling on the Egyptians for acts like those. So as we saw last week, Pharaoh drives them out, just as God had foretold. But it's not just that the Pharaoh wants the Israelites to leave. It's not just the Pharaoh who is saying, get out of Egypt. It is also the Egyptians themselves. They have had enough. They are terrified of Israel's God. Uh, Their their fear, by the way, fear in our lives is a demonstration of the level of our idolatry. We fear when our idols are sort of shaking in the wind. The people, their fear of these so-called gods had gone down to nothing. And now they were afraid of Yahweh. They had actually seen a God who can do something. They had seen the power of Israel's God If we do not get them out of here, we shall all be dead. Their firstborn has died. And now they say, all of us will die if we don't get these people out of Egypt. This is not just permission to leave. 
It is desperately wanting them to leave. And it's not just urging them to leave. Come on, come on, come on. You guys need to go. You guys need to go. This is not just urging. It's pushing them out the door. Right now, no time to waste. We're not going to wait until three days from now. We're not going to wait until the next day. We're not even going to wait until next hour. Get out of Egypt now. You must go in haste. So the Israelites were pushed out of the door, as it were, with their unleavened dough, wrapping it up in their clothes along with their kneading bowls. They're, they're just carrying out this, these batches of dough. They haven't even had time to bake the dough. They've got these batches of unleavened dough, and they're carrying them out in their kneading bowls on their shoulders, wrapped up in their clothes. Get out, get out, get out. This is the picture. But what we see in these verses is that this driving out or this hurrying out of the Israelites is a wealthy expulsion. This is not a ragtag bunch just sort of fleeing with whatever clothes they could grab, you know, just a few sticks or whatever, a little bit of dough, that's it. Look at verses 35 to 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked It doesn't say told. It doesn't say commanded. It doesn't say demanded. They simply asked. And probably, may I please have. They asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. God first mentioned this to Moses at the burning bush. This was the plan all along from the very beginning. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. And then later, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, the Lord told Moses to instruct the people accordingly. Moses knew all along that this was going to happen. So here they are. The slave people dripping in wealth. Decked out in the finest jewelry and clothing that Egypt has to offer. This is the height of irony. These are people who were working to the bone. They had nothing. At least in their enslavement. They were slaves. Used, pushed around, beaten, oppressed, brutally, harshly treated for centuries under the Egyptians. And now, they are walking out of Egypt in Egyptian Gucci and Prada, dripping with silver and gold and all of the fineries of Egypt, all the luxuries that Egypt has to offer, decked out the people of God. And all they had to do was ask. It's interesting here that the language used is military language. This is a militant language. They plundered the Egyptians. Well, we know from history what plundering looks like in the ancient world. Death, death, and more death. Lots and lots of destruction. Lots and lots of bodies 
lying around. Well, of course, we know what the Lord has already done to the Egyptians. But here, the picture is not anything violent. It is Israel simply asking, requesting. It is a peaceful plundering. And it comes from the power of God to to conquer the human heart. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, this is really interesting because what would you expect just in the natural course of events, to be happening in an Egyptian heart. They've just lost their firstborn child, maybe grown, maybe a child. Their livelihood has been decimated for all of these plagues, and now the firstborn of the cattle. The natural thing to occur in the heart of all of these Egyptians is bitterness and rage. Even if they can't do anything about it, they can at least grumble and hate these people. That would be natural, of course. But that's not what happens. Instead of bitterness and rage, there is fear and favor. They ask and they receive because of God's work in human hearts. I appreciate how one commentator, Victor Hamilton, reflects on the implication of this. Let me read you a quote here. Later in Exodus, the Israelites will do one of two things with these gifts of precious metals and fabrics. Either they will give gold, silver, and fabrics as an offering to help build the tabernacle, Or else they will give some of that gold jewelry to Aaron to help build the golden calf. Just let that settle on your mind for a moment. He goes on to say, regarding God's God's gifts to us, the possibility for proper use is there, but so is the possibility for abuse. So let me just ask you this morning, what are you doing with God's good gifts? Now, everything we have is from the Lord. We presume and we pretend as though we're the reason for what we have. As though we have the things we have because of what we have done. Everything we have is from him. Our very breath this morning, in a moment we could fall over dead and begin decaying. We have nothing that we have not been given. So the question for everything in our lives is what are we doing with God's good gifts? Are you using them to build the calf or to glorify the creator? Oh, how many of God's good gifts we turn into idols? How many of God's good things we use as fodder for our burnt offerings to our false gods who are no gods at all? What will we do with all the gifts, all the blessings, all the goodness of our Creator to us? Will we just worship ourselves away to all of these so called gods? That brings us to our second thing we see about this exit this morning is it is a mass exodus. Look at verses 37 to 39 with me a mass exodus. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, 
besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Wow. What an incredible sight this would have been. Utterly amazing. Incomprehensible. A few years ago, I took our son Jacob to an Atlanta Falcons football game at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And I was just blown away. If you've ever been to that place, maybe you've been to places similar. I don't know how that stacks up in relation to other stadiums. But uh, I, I was just blown away by how huge that place is. And I was sitting up high enough to be able to take in the kind of the whole thing. And I just, I just kept thinking, I just kept thinking about how enormous this place is. 71,000, I looked it up online, 71,000 is the seating capacity for the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And that's a big number. And, and there were a lot of people there that day we were there. But it wasn't full. And you can imagine if it were full, all those little heads. You see all those little heads. 71,000 of them, if the place is totally packed out, a big number, but nothing compared to what we find here. 600,000 men on foot, 600,000 foot soldiers, you could understand this to, to be, plus women and children, and that's not to mention all of the animals. I mean, we know how many animals Abraham had. In Genesis 13, Lot's animals, lots of them. Abraham's animals, lots of them. The, the, the shepherds of these different herds are not agreeing, and so Lot and Abraham separate. That's Genesis 13. We met Abraham in Genesis 12. It only got greater and greater and greater, and that's just Abraham's life. Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons. And all the sparing of the livestock of Egypt throughout the plagues. All these animals. Commentators have estimated that this figure probably amounted to somewhere between two to two and a half million people in total. We really don't know. You have to calculate how many kids there probably were and and the, the women and all of that. But it's been estimated somewhere between two to two and a half million people in total. This is a mass exodus of all of Israel along with a mixed multitude, we are told, of other people who want to leave with them. Maybe some of these people are uh, foreigner, other foreigners who've come into the land and they've gotten to know the Israelites. Maybe these are other oppressed peoples who've been kind of close with the Israelites, built some solidarity. But undoubtedly, this would have involved probably many Egyptians as well. Chapter 9, verse 20 tells us that Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. You know, I I, I would like to think that there are some magicians among this crew, this large crew, that there are some uh, of those former magicians, some of those former sorcerers who realized that the power that they were relying on was nothing. And that even some of those guys had turned to Yahweh, some of the servants of Pharaoh, leaving out with this mass of people. We don't know the details. 
but undoubtedly it would have involved some Egyptians and probably many other peoples. And it reminds us of Genesis 12, verse 3, where God tells Abraham at the very beginning of the Abraham story, in in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, we know that it's in his offspring. It's through his seed, singular, through Christ and the salvation that Christ would bring. But we're seeing all kinds of little pictures of this as we see these people being blessed as they're wrapped up with God's people, leaving Egypt, enjoying All the graces that Paul mentions, for example, in Romans chapter 9, verse 5. And to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, all those things. That belongs to the Israelites. And these foreign peoples are getting folded into all of that goodness and grace. So as most of you probably know, many scholars... And archaeologists have called into question this extremely high number. So watch, you know, a documentary. You're going to find this sort of thing. Some have pointed out that the word for thousand in Hebrew, elif, that the word for thousand can also mean clan. And in light of the military imagery, they argue, uh, they conclude that this word elif should be translated something like a platoon or a squad or a brigade. 600 squads is how they would conclude. They envision 600 squads, which would reduce the number down to something more manageable and realistic. Something like twenty to 30,000 or so total people leaving Egypt as they calculate the numbers. But there are a few things we need to consider here in favor of the larger number. And there's a lot of discussion on this, and you can go and look into this further if you would like. But I just want to here make a few observations regarding or in favor of the larger number, the number that would amount to two to two and a half million total people. So first, keep in mind that the Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years, for over 400 years. And remember the language of Exodus chapter 1. I just want to read you a few of these verses. So listen closely to this language. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I mean, you could just stack up all this language of multiplicity, all this language of of great numbers. Verse 9. The king of Egypt said, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Mightier than us is the way that could be understood. More than us. They've they've outgrown us. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. This is such an emphasis in Exodus chapter 1. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of of Israel. Let me just ask you a question. Is this the kind of language that you would use for 5 to 7,000 men plus women and children? No. That doesn't match. And that's what they conclude those who argue this point that 20 to 30,000 or so, 5 to 7,000 of which would have been uh, these these men And then women and children. All of that multiplication. All of that growth. And by the way, 
That growth was happening that we just read in Exodus 1. That growth was happening at the very beginning of the 400-year period. That's the way it was described then. It just continued and continued and continued. I would argue that the language in chapter 1 alone, if there was no more addition, does not work with construing this to be 20 or 30,000 total people. Second, it is often argued that this is just simply impossible. It's just impossible. How could such a large number travel and be sustained by the land? It just couldn't have happened. That's the way some people argue about this. To this, I simply respond that that's the whole point of the story. That's the whole point of the Exodus account. That's what the whole thing is about. The whole thing is about God's incomprehensible power and ability to provide. If you jerk that out of the story, it goes flat. You have nothing left. The same God who has decimated Egypt with ten miraculous plagues is able to see to the provisions of his people. As they travel through the wilderness, no matter how large the number Multiply it by two or three times. If the Lord can do what we have seen, he can do this. And what's interesting is what we find with these folks who argue this shorter number. Well, they also argue kind of a naturalistic understanding of the plagues, right? So all these things fit together. We're talking about worldview. We're not talking about evidence. We're talking about philosophical presuppositions. We're talking about worldview. And we're talking about having views that are intellectually acceptable and palatable to the world. These things you find often fit together. Let's make this more realistic. Third, I appreciate... These words from one commentator, a well-known Old Testament scholar, Walter Kaiser. He says, all attempts to explain Eliph, or thousand, as clan or tribe, fail to meet the test of consistency in other contexts. And he points to Exodus chapter 38, verses 25 to 26, where the more precise number is given for the people of 603,550. So here in our text, we're getting a general number, around 600,000. But at the end of Exodus, we get 603,550. And this is the same number given in Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, which includes all Israelite males from 20 years old and upward who were able to go to war minus the Levites. So we're looking at a tremendous number of people. And by the way, When you look in those passages, you see that there's a a tax being taken for each head. And that you look at all of the, what's being gathered and it just all fits together. The numbers actually fit together. So, I would argue that we are looking here at a massive exodus. A massive group of people. Two million plus coming out of Egypt in probably one of the greatest displays ever seen on earth. If only you could see this from space. How incredible it would be. So what's my point? This is 
Just a huge event displaying the glory of God. And it begins with a journey, as we're told here, from Ramses to Sukkoth. Now, I do have a map here. I think this is helpful. Um, That's not quite it. (laughs) I do have a a map here for... um, Yeah, there we go. The route that I think, now this is very debated, so you can go and you can look at different uh, takes on this. I, I've become convinced uh, by those who have argued this route for the Exodus. And so you see there Sukkoth moving from Goshen, and then of course going across the Sinai wilderness, and then down south, and then crossing the Yam Suf, known as the Red Sea, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. There. So we're, we're going to refer to this more as we go through. We'll come back to this uh, as we're going through uh, these sermons on the Exodus. But at least for now, I just want you to see the first leg of the journey there, uh, southeast from Goshen to Sukkoth. And by the way, this is a map that uh, was created by Glenn Fritz. Uh, he, he's a professional geographer and has been studying this for decades. Uh, and he argues, uh, along with others, that this is the actual route of the, uh, the Exodus, which would not put Mount Sinai at the traditional location, nor would it put the crossing of the Red Sea at the Gulf of Suez or some little lake up above Goshen. So I just give you this so that you can have a visual for uh, where the people are headed. Once they arrive at Sukkoth, they are then able to bake their unleavened cakes of dough. And so we read this in verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So we see the emphasis, once again, on the speed with which all this happened. And so the unleavened bread of Passover... And the Feast of Unleavened Bread are meant to point to this hasty departure from Egypt. Not only do they eat unleavened bread during the Passover, but they don't have time to leaven their bread as they are exiting. And so when they get to Sukkoth, they bake that bread, but of course it is unleavened bread because they didn't have any time to add the yeast and wait for it to rise. Finally, as we finish up this morning, we come to the fact that it is a fulfilled event. It is a fulfilled event. So it's a a wealthy expulsion, a mass exodus, and now finally it is a fulfilled event. Look with me at verses 40 to 42. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord. That's just an amazing picture. By the way, that's the God who is watching over us even today. A night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Of course, they're referring to Passover. One of the most important characteristics of the Exodus is that it did not happen out of nowhere. It wasn't just something that God introduced because things got so bad for his people in Egypt. It wasn't that that things were going along great in Egypt and then some nasty Pharaoh guys came along and and enslaved them and it just got really bad. And so God had to figure out what it was that he was going to do for his people and he devised the exodus. No. As we heard earlier during our scripture reading, this was God's plan 
from the beginning. Before Abraham had had even one child, the Lord said to him, in Genesis 15, 13 to 14, uh, this is what we read. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That's, that's referring to Egypt. He's in Canaan when God says this to him. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Wow. No children. And God is already telling him the details of what's going to happen centuries later. Listen to that. God didn't tell Abraham this after he had his son. God told Abraham this as he, an old man, his wife, an old woman, and she's barren. And God tells Abram, not just, I'm going to do this thing for you. I'm going to give you a descendant. I'm going to multiply your descendants. No, he starts to tell him exactly what's going to happen in centuries to come. All that will come upon his people and what God will do to rescue them. The Exodus is a fulfilled event. It is a fulfillment of God's trustworthy word. When God says that something is going to happen, it's going to happen. And that should remind us, everyone in here who is not a believer, when God says that Christ is coming back and that he will judge the earth, and when God says that that there will be a second death called the lake of fire, that hell is real, just as sure as this happened, that will happen. That's going to happen. And for those of us in Christ Jesus... Jesus will return. He has prepared a place for us and he will gather us to himself. And as Paul tells the Thessalonians, so we will be with the Lord. Dot, dot, dot to infinity. These things will come to pass. If God says that something is going to happen, it will undoubtedly happen because his word is trustworthy and his character is faithful. God had never abandoned his people. This was always the plan. And he never abandons us. None of us. He's with us, just as he was with Israel, in all of their suffering, in all of their burdens, and in all of their folly, and their grumbling. He was with them, and he is with us. So now... It's the time. It has come. Now he will lead his people out of slavery on his terms, on God's terms, in his way, according to his perfect wisdom. It is a night of watching by the faithful God at the specific time that the wise God had ordained. Now, I can imagine that some would have argued back then that God should have done it sooner. Right? I mean, you can imagine some Israelites, they, I mean, we see the grumbling. We're going to get to all that nastiness. We, we see the grumbling that's going to come. And you can just imagine that the people then think, well, now he's doing it. All these years and all these centuries, surely God should have done this sooner. And maybe that's the case with you. Maybe that's how you feel in your life. Maybe those are the things you say. Remember this story. Remember God's 
goodness and his power. He's able right now to change any of our circumstances. He's perfectly able to do that. And he may. But he may not. Thus is the life of faith. Thus is the life of pilgrimage as a Christian on our way to glory. On our way to the heavenly city. Moses tells us here that the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years. 430 years from the time Jacob and his offspring entered Egypt at the end of Genesis. And we get that at the very beginning of Exodus, the the arrival of Israel. We know Jacob's name has changed to Israel. The arrival of Israel with his descendants, who are the Israelites collectively, Israel, 430 years. This is the more precise number where the round number of 400 years is given in Genesis 15. So just like we have in Exodus 12 here, we get the the more general number, about 600,000. It's a round number. We get the specific number, 603,550 at the end of Exodus. The same is true here in Genesis 15. 400 years given as a round number. And here we get specifically from the time that Jacob entered, 430 years. Now, some have pointed out that Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, seems to see the law coming 430 years after the promise given to Abraham. And you think, oh man, what am I going to do with that? Is this some sort of contradiction? Well, it's not a contradiction at all. If you understand, which I think there's biblical justification for this in terms of how a Hebrew would have thought about God's promises, if you understand that God's promises to Abraham sort of encapsulate God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what we see is this period of patriarchal promise. God gives the promise to Abraham. He reiterates it to Isaac. And he reiterates it the last time to Jacob, right as Jacob is about to enter into is enter into Egypt 430 years before the giving of the law. So these texts actually fit together quite nicely if understood rightly. So here we are, Abraham's descendants, now numbering in the millions. That's, that's breathtaking. Let me take us back one more time to Genesis chapter 15. Verses 1 to 6 as we close. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And listen to Abram's honesty with the Lord. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Let me help you out here, God. There's this guy here in my household, not my real heir, but we can just make him an heir, and then all your promises will just be coming true. God doesn't need Abram's help. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. And he said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. 
Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then the response. And he believed the Lord. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul tells us in Romans that this is the great illustration of saving faith. What does it look like to believe unto salvation? What does it look like to really believe? What does it look like to believe and be saved from the wrath to come? Here we have it. What we have now may seem like very little, but saving faith takes hold of God's promises as though they are now. Saving faith sees millions of descendants when there are zero. Zero. Saving faith takes hold of heaven regardless of what we face here on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great revelations of your faithfulness, of your rescue, of your great power, your ability to work in hearts, your ability to care for your people in mass numbers. God, the greatness of your majesty is on display. Father, we pray that you would humble our hearts before you, that all the things we live for would become small and you would become great and majestic. Your salvation would become real to us, Father. And that with earnestness and zeal and passion, we would leave here this morning to number our days and to serve you, our God. Help us, we pray. And remind us now, we ask, Lord, in our hearts deeply of what Christ did for us as we participate in the Lord's Supper. As we think about the blood that covered the homes of the Israelites, Lord, and you passed over them, your holiness, your fierce wrath against rebellion and godless evil, violence, hatred in our hearts against our neighbor, Lust, adultery of the heart, covetousness, envy, pride, malice, deceit, selfishness. All these sins that we know so well and that the Israelites knew so well you passed over. Lord, we praise you that you have passed over our sins. And we'll remember it no more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.